This is Black Talk, where global black experts mix with local voices from the black community. Personal stories meet historical context, and black achievement is celebrated as we explore the realities of anti-black racism. Here are your co-hosts, Andy Knight and Zach Penda. Hi, I'm Andy Knight. Hi, I'm Zach Penda. Our guest today is Dr. Bukola Salami, an award-winning researcher and associate professor in the Faculty of Nursing at the University of Alberta. Among her many accomplishments, Dr. Salami has been featured in the 100 Accomplished Black Women in Canada, named as a top 40 under 40 recipient by Avenue Magazine and awarded Researcher of the Year by the Honor Society of Nursing. Zach and I were fortunate to connect with her to learn more about her personal journey. Just to begin, uh, Dr. Bacola, you were 16 years old when you first arrived in Canada. How did you feel when you got here? Did you feel welcome? I'm wondering if you can give us some memories of any of the culture shock that you might have experienced when you came. So um, I um, grew up in Nigeria. And I came here, as you said, at the age of um, 16 at that time. I came with uh, my one sister and one brother. Two of my older sisters were here already. The beauty of that is um, I was able to get some orientation into the Canadian context with the help of my sisters who were already here. But at the same time, I think before I came, my dad um, has been living in Canada for a long time and used to come to Nigeria. And he would always bring us presents. And then I also had images that I saw on TV about what Canada was like or what North America was like, and which, you know, looked all rosy. And then it's um, when I came here that I did um, realize that, yes, people do live in poverty. I was surprised to see that, yes, you have actually people that are homeless, that don't have a home. And um, some of the things that we take for granted back home, due to the fact that, you know, the close-knit and the community support that people receive, that um, sometimes it's not available in Canada. So you know, those were some of my initial experience. I, um, I did, I must confess, I had um, some um, good support from my high school, but I was one of the more quiet ones in high school. So, um, and I was exposed very early on in my second um, summer here to um, the Black Student Mentorship Program at the U of T. And, and I think that really, really helped pave the way for me very early on in my career, that even though I was, you know, quiet and, you know, didn't really form connections, um, that at least I, you know, I had some things to reflect on based on that experience. So in, in Canada, you must have had some experiences of racism. And I know lots of uh, Black people come to Canada for the first time uh, you know, is ostensibly white society. And depending on where you live, uh, you may not encounter sort of in-your-face racism, but sometimes polite racism. Have you had any chance to encounter that kind of racism when you first came to Canada? Well, uh, for, for me, um, the memories of racism that sticks to me is the memories that my parents experienced and also my experience of, all, you know, just being underestimated. I think for me, the, the racism that really, really affected me a lot while growing up is um, my parents were here in the 70s and they were able to migrate to Canada in the 70s. My dad 
studied biochemistry at McMaster University and then went to Fairleigh Dixon Universities to um, you know, do a master's degree in, um, I think it was in management science. And my mom, um, you know, went to um, study political science at um, the University of Winnipeg. And after they completed their degree, they went right back. You know, things, things were much better in Nigeria economically. So, so they went right back and I was born in Nigeria. And then, you know, they decided to come back to Canada. And when they came back to Canada, the way that people discriminated against them was say, you don't have Canadian experience. So, of course, they couldn't go to an employer and the employer would say, you don't have a Canadian degree because they did have it. You know, they could prove that, you know, they had Canadian degree, that they had good grades and they did well in school. And due to Canadian experience, they, my mom and my dad have never been able to use their Canadian education in Canada. You know, my mom and dad have told me stories about, you know, showing up and, you know, there was a lot of enthusiasm. And then when people see see the color of your face, then, um, you know, things change. So, I mean, I do, you know, for example, when I was in um, high school, I remember going and, you know, trying to apply for a job. And I was told that the job is no longer available. And I'm like, well, the sign is still there. <laughs> and then weeks after that, I saw that, you know, they hired someone else. And because, of course, they they don't want to hire a black person for that job. In the current day, uh, my most experience is um, just the experience mixed racism and also unconscious bias. So just always been underestimated, you know, because I don't look like the typical person that is in academia or, you know, the typical person that the society says is a brilliant person. So the experience that I often have is, you know, people, you know, underestimating what I'm capable of. And that influences what I have access to and what I'm able to achieve and the opportunities that I have in um, in that regard. Yeah, no, that's a, that's that's very interesting to hear. It's unfortunate some of the, um, what I like to call ethnic penalties that ethnic minorities face when they try to gain employment or uh, make use of degrees, especially considering that they got those here. Uh, the, the, the fact that they weren't able to use those is, is very shocking indeed. But um, I also just want to ask you a little bit about your upbringing and your come up. Um, you completed a mentorship program at the U of T uh, with a nurse that you met over there. And you, you also said that you had wanted to become a doctor initially, but after meeting with this woman, you had decided to dive headfirst into nursing and not look back. So. I was wondering if you could just uh, give our audience a little bit of insight towards this. Uh, what was she able to show you that changed your mind? And how was that transition for you? So before I have had experiences with um, nurses when I was in Nigeria, but it's like visiting a nurse giving you an injection. So it's on the other side of being a patient. And um, you know, when I went through the mentorship program, the nice thing is... Um, he provided me with opportunities to shadow healthcare professionals. So I shadowed a pediatrician. I shadowed, uh, you know, for one day, I shadowed a gynecologist, family physician or two. And I also shadowed one nurse. And she's probably the only nurse that was involved in the mentorship program at that time. And um, I went with her and um, she met with um, a family, a parent and her children. And it was just the experiences the relationship that she had. Um, and my thought at that time would be, oh, you know, this is a profession that I can actually do. Um, and I was still planning to still continue 
to pursue medicine. But I said, you know, I want to at least try nursing first before I pursue medicine. And then after I tried, you know, nursing, especially after I started my master's, after I started my master's in nursing, there was really no turning back because, um, you know, I gained so much in terms of, um, you know, the relationship that nurses do have with um, the patients that they provide care to. That's wonderful. You know, I think the work that you're doing today in mentorship must have had something to do with your early experience as well in having good mentors. I think that's an incredibly important aspect of trying to build confidence within young people to pursue those kinds of careers that they probably thought they never could. Yes, I totally agree. And I don't think I would have planned to create a mentorship program if I didn't have that experience. Uh, Because I have the experience and I've always had this dream of creating a mentorship program. But it's like, you know, you have the dream. There are several dreams that we have that we can never really actualize because we don't really have the resources or the position to actually be able to realize it. And the time came when, you know, I had the resources and everything just came together to be able to. So that program was initiated by a group of healthcare professionals that came together to address some of the low number of Black healthcare professionals in medicine. They formed an association in Ontario at that time. The association was um, to increase the representation of Black people in medicine. And, you know, as I went through the program and as I completed and reflected on, on the program, I thought, you know, there are people that actually helped me to get here. I should also be able to pass on the baton and help someone else. And hopefully they would also be able to help someone else and we will continue to grow. And the initiative has actually had so much impact. This year, you know, from um, when I was um, doing the mentorship program, when there used to be only one Black student every year admitted to medicine, this year there are 20-something Black students admitted to University of Toronto Faculty of Medicine. And it's, you know, it's some of those initiatives that are really, really now catching up. And even though there's still disparity in the number of uh, physicians that we have um, that are Black, I think we have maybe around 29% or 25% of um, physicians in Canada that are Black, as opposed to around 39 or 4% Black people in the Canadian population. We still have a long way to go, but um, it's improved. One thing that I've always been concerned with, you know, I always talk about this thing about the cappuccino effect in um, healthcare. And also just across the population. It's like, you know, the workforce is like a cappuccino. It's black underneath, it's white on top. And oftentimes you you start thinking about, you know, why do we have so much inequalities? You know, why do we have so much COVID-19? I was talking to someone just before this meeting and, you know, they were telling me that, um, you know, the concentration of COVID-19 in the city, it's concentrated in the Northeast of the city. And when you think about the Northeast, who lives in the Northeast, marginalized individuals. Where are Black people, low-income Black people most represented in, in the city, in the Northeast? And we have consistent data across Canada, too, that neighbors that are Black are more likely to get COVID-19 infection. And in the past, we know that income was a significant social determinant of health. But now we know that you know being Black actually has a significant influence on your health. And some of the underlying reason for that, the first reason for that is income inequality and employment inequality too. That, for example, when you look at the healthcare industry and you look at who is um, sitting in an office, it's probably a white person. When you look at who is actually doing the personal support work and innovating and, and being much more in contact with people, it's probably a black person. And because of that, 
you have more black people. But we must also recognize that that stratification in the workforce is also based on um, race, that there's racialized and structural racism that affects where people are placed within the ladder um, in the workforce. You know, for us to address some of the issues that we have, including issues related to COVID-19 pandemic and other issues, that we must address income inequality. And for us to address income inequality, we must address racism, and especially including anti-Black racism that continue to um, affect us broadly in the society. You know, we had a very good interview uh, with Hilary Beckles, who is the Vice Chancellor of the University of West Indies. He made the point that the legacy of slavery has led to things like increased NCDs among the Black populations uh, in the Caribbean in particular. And it had a lot to do with the, the kinds of foods that they were fed as slaves. And they got a, accustomed to that food, high in salt, high in sugar, high in fat. You know, and, and cases of um, NCDs have just arisen to make the Caribbean Black people, he said, the poorest health <laughs> of any sort of population base. That's a tremendous problem now with COVID-19 because if you have NCDs, chances are you're going to be affected more significantly by COVID-19 than, than if you didn't. So uh, do you see that as happening as well among the Black population here in Canada? Yes, and um, I think a case in point about the historical racism in Canada is the piece about, um, um, what do you call this, um, um, vaccination. There was a Statistics Canada data that showed that um, you know, Black people were 20% less likely to plan to get COVID-19 vaccination. But there's actually underlying issues for this. You know, when I go and um, there is a Facebook um, page, um, Black, in, um, Black in Toronto Facebook page, and I went and I looked at you know, some of the reasons why some people were saying that they won't be getting the vaccine. We are really because of mistrust of the system. You know, people have experienced so much racism within the system. So people, for example, talked about um, the syphilis study. And um, the syphilis study was a study that was done on Black people. And they were told that they were um, having an experiment done on them. And some people died in the process um, while, you know, being lied to by the government. And, and those are some of the racist past that we have, including in the conduct of research and unethical practices that have been happening against Black people. Well, um, some Black people know this directly, but some actually have incorporated some of these lessons, historical lessons, into some of the decision-making about their health at the current and um, present day and age. So that is how some of the issues related to historical racism continues to affect us in terms of, um, for example, to access to um, health services for Black populations. And usually because um the black population tend to be on the lower end of the spectrum when it comes to the economic strata. And they, in some cases, can't really afford to have the kind of medical care and healthcare that they need to have. And luckily for Canada, we have a sort of a universal healthcare system. And some of those problems can be resolved that way, but there's still people who are, you know, in a job and can't afford um, to have a, a medical assistance and they become the victims of these kinds of pandemics. One of the questions I want to ask you as well is this aspiration, this goal that we have in Canada of a multicultural society, 
this is part and parcel of our constitution now, to have a multicultural society where everyone is going to be equal uh, is something that we aspire to. But do you think we are getting any closer to that goal today? You know, as you say, it's um, something that we aspire to and, you know, we need to um, try and continue to move forward. Um, we do have a huge um, history about um, racism in Canada. So so when we look back to, I think it was 1910, that, you know, our law was actually implemented or put forward that basically said, Black people, you can come to Canada. Well, they didn't say directly, but indirectly, polite racism, they said it, that if you are a person of a certain race that cannot um, survive the Canadian weather, then uh, we would burn you from Canada. So it's a way to say, we're trying to help you, you know, your race, we don't want you to die by coming to Canada. So if you are Black or you're non-white, then please don't come to Canada because you're going to die in Canada, which is just a way that historically Canada has um, used polite forms of racism to um, deter people from coming to Canada. And, you know, you know, the law changed at some point to um, point-based uh, system in terms of selection um, to come to Canada. Although we do still know that when you look at the geographical distribution of where people are coming from, from Canada, it's, you know, the most amount of people are not coming from Africa and they're not coming from the Caribbean. So there are still um, differences in um, the countries that people come from. So, so I mean, there are things that have changed and there are things that, you know, continue to remain the same. Um, and one of those things that continue to remain the same is, um, you know, income inequality. And a lot of the reasons for those income inequalities because of um, anti-Black racism that we continue to have within the system and also um, structural racism that continue to um perpetuate within the system. So we haven't, you know, achieved um, what we said and what we aim for, which is multiculturalism. But hopefully, you know, we continue to move more forward. And I don't think actually, you know, I think there are some things in the world that are infinite, such as um, achieving equity. Maybe at some point, um, you know, in my generation or the next generation, there would be. But I think, you know, it's something that we, we need to continue to aim for and um, continue to strive for, not just in terms of um, issues related to racialization, but um, issues also related to um, abilities and, you know, several other issues. You know, when I think about it more, um, you know, I've said this in the past that, you know, we have done a lot more work, sorry to say, on issues related to gender inequality than we have done in Canada on um, issues related to racism. So, for example, when you look at the systems that are in place. You have Canada's feminist international policy, not Canada's anti-racism international policy. When you look at submitting a grant for CIHR, you need to put about gender, how you've considered gender. You don't have to put about how you've considered race. And um, when you look at a lot of these grants, it's not anti-racism equity plus, it's gender equity plus. Um, and I think we need to, you know, just as we have moved ahead. In terms of um, gender, and I am not saying that we have actually achieved gender equality in Canada. No, we still have a long way to go in achieving gender equality. But just as we've moved ahead, that we should also not forget issues related to racism and anti-racism um, in terms of um, trying to also forge that ahead. Some of the things that I think in terms of tangible solutions to this is we need to really, really ensure that we have accountability measures. In a lot of um, anti-racism um, policies, I think, you know, what we tend to do now is, you know, organizations, they bring people together and they teach them, you know, educate them about, you know, don't be racist and no one is evaluating after. 
You know, no one is making sure that actually people are infusing this and implementing it. And I think we need to have you no know, performance evaluation that actually incorporates anti-racism into it. I think that's a way to actually get people to to actually ensure that they are being anti-racist. And also all these grant applications that people are submitting to the government that have programs and, and funding and, you know, and people have to demonstrate at the end of the grant that they've considered gender or um, they've included francophone minorities. Well, we should also have a place where people actually demonstrate at the end of the grant that they've actually considered anti-racism. It's not going to solve all the problem because you have some people that are just good at lying. And that's just a fact. But at least it will help some people. It will help push things forward more in terms of addressing issues of race and racism. Yeah, no, you bring up some really good points. And uh, first of all, when you when you mentioned the University of Toronto's enrollment of 20 Black med school students, I think that is quite substantial. And then also the point about um, vaccinations for for COVID, for Black populations, I, th- I think you're absolutely right when you start to talk about the distrust that exists within the system, definitely there's a different experience that Black people have when they go to healthcare institutions than people that aren't Black, and whether that be a a regular walk-in clinic or especially in in an emergency room. And it's definitely something that I personally try to avoid because the treatment hasn't been up to par. It's not what I've seen from other people of different ethnic backgrounds. So I think that's a really good point to bring up. Um, you're doing some seriously interesting research on uh, African migrant children and their healthcare needs. Can you, can you, would you be able to give our audience some details about this work and um, what spurred it for you? So um, I have done some work in the past, a, a while back, um, in 2016, about African um, child migration. Um, I did some work on parenting and mental promotion practices. I did some work on you know, conversation cafes to address mental health. And then I've also done some work about Black Youth Mentorship Program. And I also did some work with um, the YEG Come Up Group, which is a group that is affiliated with the Africa Center, a youth group, on um, addressing mental health needs of Black youths. And that's the most recent one that I did. And I think it's really, you know, a lot of the work that I do is based on what I see around me, the inequities I see around me, or the inequities that I have experienced. So it's either what I am seeing, um, based on my community work or based on just my everyday life as being Black or what I have experienced in the past. And, and the piece about you know, the Black youth, um, based on both my past experience and also the fact that um, I was a board member of Africa Center and I realized that the youth really, really needed support and I had approached them. And we did the project um, interviews and group um, work with um, 129 Black youths on um, the mental health of Black youths, and I supported the youths in collecting the data themselves. So, you know, the youths were co-researchers, I trained them, they collected the data themselves, and they've also presented the data. And they organized the day to give a presentation to around 75 people. And the two things, you know, when I looked at the data, that really jumped out to me that, you know, let's say, you know, the most amount of people that everyone was talking about across the youths, because when you pick out teams from some of these interviews, it's possible that not everyone talked about it, but you pick out what resonates, you know, what comes out more. But consistently, people talked about two most important things influencing Black youth's mental health. And that was anti-Black racism and intergenerational tensions. So tensions between parents and children related to, you know, cultural tensions and, and also understanding of mental health. And also the piece about 
the fact that some parents have just been so resilient growing up that um, they have either they're aware of it or they are unaware of it. Perceptions that because they've been resilient, their children or youth should also be resilient like them. You know, because they've dealt with things and they've not resolved it themselves, then they don't actually know how to help their youth resolve it. And also anti-Black racism. And so anti-Black racism was what came out more. And some of the youths talked about, you know, they grew up with so much internalized racism that they've actually internalized it. And it's actually become now part of the experience and also affecting their mental health. So in terms of addressing some of the structural issues that youths face, um, including issues related to barriers in access to healthcare. So we know that, for example, I think there was an hospital in Toronto where you know, there was an, a black youth. It was a girl that um, she basically bled to death after a surgery. You know, there were several reasons for that. And one of the reasons for that was um, the healthcare professionals were not skilled enough in terms of being able to assess skin color for bleeding. Um, the hospital was sued and um, the parents won. And, you know, when you think about racism, there are several forms in which it can show up. And there are some of those ways that racism can show up in terms of healthcare professionals not paying attention to learning enough about how to address health um, outcomes among Black people. So, so, for example, some of our youth said, you know, some of the barriers that they face in terms of accessing healthcare is when they have an experience of racism and um, they approach someone about, you know, I'm experiencing racism. The psychologist just wants to brush it outside because they have not experienced racism themselves and they do not know how to um, address or deal with um, experiences of racism among youth. So, so that's one of the challenges. That reminds me about the fact that many Black youth that suffer from sickle cell anemia, um, they always say that doctors don't seem to, to know what to do. One day they look perfectly fine and then the next day, they're completely ravished with this pain in, in different parts of the, their bodies. Is that still a problem in Canada? Or are more doctors and more nurses now learning how to deal with sickle cell? Well, this child that actually died, she also had sickle cell. Um, and I think, um, you know, one thing that I, I know has happened quite often is um, Black people, especially Black people with sickle cell, um, getting into emergency situations and asking for pain medication. And then, you know, people just thinking because they're Black, they must be a drug addict, right? Or just people having bias and misconception that because you're Black, you're tough, so you can deal with pain. So that's, you know, some of the challenges that, you know, Black people continue to um, experience. And I, I don't know if you know about, you know, one data that showed that, um, you know, Black people, not just um, in health, but also in education, your um, outcomes, educational outcomes improve when you're taught by a black person. And um, also, um, you know, there is a study in the UK that showed that when a black baby receives care from a black doctor, even a black baby <laughs> receives care from a black doctor, that their health outcomes um, increase. And, and you think, you know, why does this exist? And, and that's one, one of the reasons why it's so important that we have Black people that are doctors, that we have Black people that are teachers, that we have Black people that are lawyers. Because one of the challenges that I'm beginning to see is um, recently, you know, I was um, applying to um, go a full professorship and I was trying to look for people that can actually review my file. 
you know, and I, I was thinking that I want to actually get some black people to actually be part of the review. Well, there's not much more professors that are black. And what I noticed is we have a lot of black assistant professors. And I think there's a lot of them that um, don't get past assistant professor or associate professor level and don't move into full professor. And I think this is one of the embedded inequities that we have in the academia. The awkward mobility, not just in terms of Black people, there's one thing about Black people getting in, and then there's one thing about Black people getting up and um, being able to actually be part of the decision-making of um, institutions. And I think that's one of the things that we have to address um, within academia. I was was talking at the conference of um, Black graduate students And one thing that I said is this whole thing about equity and diversity and inclusion, when a Black person comes to the faculty, especially when they come first to a faculty that is all white, um, the first thing is um, you're looking for someone to be on the equity and diversity team. But the bad thing about the equity and diversity team is a lot of those on the team, they don't get, um, it's not recognized. So so yes, you do all this work, but um, it's not recognized. And you know, it's either we start to protect some of our Black folks early in their career from, from these dangers, um, or we actually give them more credit for the work they do. You know, there's the visible work that they do, and then there's the invisible work in terms of, you know, people approaching you just because you're Black to support them. Um, and, and we need to really, like, um, how can we actually grow and um, nurture um, some of our Black early career researchers? including graduate students and those within the first three, four years of their career. We need uh, people that will be able to aim and get to be, um, you know, to be a university professor and also to be uh, vice chancellors and, you know, yeah. This, this is the other point I was going to say is that if you look around our university and you look at the senior management positions within the university, there's not a single Black person. And I mean, that's a structural problem, right? It's, because if you don't have at least one or two black people in those senior positions, these are, these are the poor decision-making bodies. Yeah. What I also got to learn about from being with um, the black faculty collective, we don't have people high up, but we do have really strong black researchers at this university. So we have people that are doing great work and are doing really, really well. Because, of course, they are overworking themselves like I'm used to. But um, I don't think we have any dean that is Black. No, I don't think so either. I, I doubt it. I think we may have an associate dean that is um, Black, but yeah. And, you know, that's one of the things that we need to um, attend to. Um, we need to also have more diverse um, hiring of Black um, um, graduate students to become um, faculty members. Mm-hmm. I was going to ask you about this uh, because I think this is one of the structural racist problems uh, at any university. And I think some universities are actually doing something about it. They're targeting black people to be hired within their university system. I, I see this happening at McMaster, at York University, at Ryerson. Uh, I don't see the same thing happening at the University of Alberta right now. Yes. And I don't like it's an Alberta thing um, because I also see it in terms of healthcare. So we tend to be more slower in anything related to anti-racism. So even in terms of race-based data in COVID-19, we have race-based data in COVID-19 in Toronto. Um, the Toronto Board of Health declared um, anti-Black racism as a public health emergency. And um, they do have a Black caucus that is focused on increasing vaccination. Nothing in Alberta. 
And, you know, we have the fastest growing population of Black people. So, you know, there's Alberta. There's also the, the University of Alberta, you know, dragging our feet. And I think, you know, one of the reasons why I was very weary about this equity and diversity and inclusion thing earlier was, um, you know, oftentimes, um, you know, once you start all these things, one is, um, you know, you get a lot of documents and policies that are developed and it doesn't go anywhere further. So I am not in for things like that. And the other thing is, um, you know, you try and implement uh, equity and diversity. You know, you get, um, I, I don't know how to explain this, but, you know, people know how to work the system and they work against it in very, very stylish ways that you cannot really pinpoint that they've actually worked against equity and diversity and inclusion. So it's almost like, you know, for every two steps that you make, um, you know, 1.5 steps backward because there's a, there's a countermeasure by people that use their polite reason to actually resist some of the systems. You know, that to me is a big challenge for especially Alberta because the nature of the racism is a little bit more insidious, right? It's more polite. People don't confront you face on. But but there but it's there. You, you can see it's there in in the policies that have been created, or the absence of black faculty members or black staff. Um, students don't want to come to a university where they can't see themselves reflected in the people that teach them. So we need to have many more black faculty members to be representative of the increasing numbers of black people within the province itself. Um, and I think that's one of the challenges that we have here. Yeah, I, I absolutely agree. And as I said, um, we know that within elementary K to 12 education, that you know, when people are taught by Black people, they are more likely to do better in school. That I have a feeling that probably if we did that research among undergraduate students, that if they are taught by Black faculty members, that that may have an impact, or at least have one Black faculty or two Black faculty members they, that they come across. One each year of their university education go a long way in terms of um, improving um, broader economic um, outcomes in Canada. And I think, you know, one of the things is um, oftentimes when you talk about issues related to Black people, think people always think, you know, it's 12 Black people. But FPD issues does not just help Black people. So we think about it. Let's think about COVID-19. People are dying from COVID-19 infection. Why are people dying from COVID-19 infection? Well, well, we have the infection. Number two is we have social inequities in Canada. And what are the underlying reasons of that social inequity? There's racist tendencies. And those racialization and racism has an impact on the long-term on population health outcomes. So in the long run, it actually has an influence economic outcomes and um, also on um, social outcomes in Canada. And this is um, one of the reasons why it's really important to address issues related to you know, anti-Black racism and also anti-Indigenous racism too, you know, for a more um, just and also a healthier Canada. Well, listen, this has been a wonderful um, conversation with you. And I thank you so much for, for joining us for this conversation. I, I think we should do this again. I um, actually enjoy the conversation. It's, I think um, I thought it would be more formal conversation, but it's just, um, well, let's chat. I like that. I, I think that's the whole purpose behind these conversations is to make it as informal as possible. Uh, our audience probably likes it better <laughs> than, than the formal sort of lecture. 
and we are used to lecturing as professors, but it's nice to sit down and have a conversation about what really ails us as, as a community and what can be done to improve it. You know, maybe you can end off on giving us some recommendations of what can be done here at the University of Alberta to lift all the people up. Because, you know, the first president of the university said, we're going to lift all the people up. And I, I don't see that happening uh, right now. And so what could be done to level the playing field, which I think is what uh, most uh, minority groups within the university want to have happen. We want to level the playing field so that everybody has the same opportunity to thrive and to excel. You know, first is we need to have, um, you know, race-based data collection, equity-focused data collection. And I would say those equity-focused data collection has to um, consider the intersectionalities and I think now what we have is um, we lump up all non-white together um, in one pot in looking at um, breakdown in terms of salaries. And we need to actually break things down further to be able to actually see inequities that um, do exist within the system. And also equity-based data collection in terms of um, also student experience. And we need to also um, hire more um, Black faculty members and more faculty members that are underrepresented in the academy. And the other thing that we need to do is um, support them. Those that we hire, it's not in a way that, um, you know, they come in and we are just waiting to jump off all the equity responsibilities. But in what ways can we support early career researchers? And I must confess, I was blessed in one way. I got support. I would say I did a lot of teaching. But I also had people that mentored me when I first came into the University of Alberta. And I know some of my, many of my colleagues that are Black you know, don't receive anything to, to, um, to um, what I receive. And, and in what ways can we actually support um, you know, Black um, faculty members and also um, you know, support um, you know, Black students? And we also have to have um, you know, policies that are really, really focused on um, ensuring and addressing anti-racism in ensuring and addressing unconscious bias. Also, you know, give more reward to people that are doing, to, um, you know, there are activities that Black people tend to do more um, than non-Black, and that includes things like service, community service, and uh, mentorship. And, and we need to give more reward and uh, more consideration of, you know, some of those. And I have said um, in talking to policymakers, I, I am grateful that we are planning to have a black chair in one of the faculties very soon, but you know, we need more people that are black chair position. We also need more research funding pumped in to support um, black research and uh, research that also addresses inequities. No, most definitely. And uh, just one last question for you, uh, Bukola. Uh, drawing on your experience uh, coming up and going through a master's, going through a PhD, becoming a professor and where you sit now with all your research experience, what advice or what guidance would you like to give some of the younger uh, Black women and men that uh, plan to potentially trod in the same path as you? Uh, what, what type of uh, advice would you like to offer to them? I would say, you know, one of the things is surround yourself with positive people that believe in you. Because I know as Black people, a lot of times we experience racism and that weighs us down. And we start actually not believing in ourselves. You know, when I came into the academia, I wrote, I read Chronicle of Higher Education, and I was an addict. And um, one thing that I learned is, um, you know, you have um, a um, trusted senior colleague, um, and you at least, I tried to have at least one that was Black, 
um, to really cheer me up and um, um, to um, you know, um, you know, to, to infuse the posi- uh, positivity. So, so look for uh, mentors, um, including uh, mentors outside of the Black community and mentors inside of the Black community, because there are different purposes for that. Those outside of the Black community will tell you things that people inside the Black community do not know. And those inside the Black community will really be able to know some of the real experiences that you're really experiencing that you can tell a white person that you'll be able to really, really discuss um, with them. The other thing is um, keep focused, you know, keep focused on um, your long-term goal and try as much as possible, you know, any resource that you can you can tap into. You know, I, I did seek out mentors when I was, um, you know, growing up and that really helped me with some of my work. And, and I think for me, it was just focus and mentorship. I think those are the main two things. Um, for for black youth, and that's a great answer, and I'm sure everybody listening will uh, will definitely appreciate that. Thank you so much for being with us today, Andy. Do you have any parting words? Well, I can agree with you more, Bukola, about if you're going to progress within a system like ours uh, that's ostensibly white, you need to have some white allies to help you along the way, <laughs> because they do know things that you know the few blacks that are here may not know. And I think this is one of the secrets I found for my own self. Um, I was able to sort of surround myself with really, really good mentors who were not black. And they were able to sort of chart a path for me. Uh, when I came in as an associate professor, to get to full professor very quickly, I was told, you know, you need to publish. And the faculty evaluation committee is going to look at your publication record, which means that you can't spend all your time doing service, although that's important, but you can't weigh yourself down doing service at the expense of your publications because that's going to hurt you at the faculty evaluation committee. And that when they were right, you know, and now that I became full professor and so on, I can then turn my attention to more service because I don't have to worry as much about getting that one publication to give me another incremental leap. So I, I think that's a very, very good uh, note to end on and a good admonition for, for anyone, uh, students or faculty, who wants to thrive in the system. Okay, Bukola, thank you so much for joining us and, and spending this time with us. And I look forward to, again, continuing this conversation at some point with you. Yes, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you very much. And thank you so much to Zach. Excellent, I enjoyed it. Now, Let's hear from community members with stories from their personal experiences. Hello, bonjour. My name is Anne-José Villeneuve. I'm an associate professor at the University of Alberta's Campus Saint-Jean. I'm a child of a Québécois father and a Haitian mother, and this is my story. I watched the Oprah interview with Megan and Harry. How dark might the baby's skin be? They wondered. I'm not a royalist, but I know compassion. When anti-Black racism comes from within your own home, it's like an arrow shot straight to the heart. I don't have a vivid memory of the day that I met my paternal grandfather. I don't remember getting dressed up to go to the funeral home. I don't remember seeing this strange man's body in the coffin. But I do remember hearing my white cousins talk about how they had visited our grandfather once or twice, how he had taken them out for barbecue chicken, 
My brother and I never got that. Perhaps my mom, who had experienced firsthand his racist joke when she was first introduced to him, knew we were better off without him, his rejection, the pain he could cause. And yet, she insisted on us going to the wake that day, just to be there. Faire acte de présence. Yeah, that's it. Just showing up. Bloodlines don't make a home. My paternal roots go back to the mid-17th century, when French settlers were landing on the shores of the St. Lawrence River. My mom immigrated from Haiti in the early 70s, met my dad, worked as a nurse, built a new home, our home. Still, growing up in our family meant that every so often, perhaps at St. Jean-Baptiste celebrations, I'd see someone I love being targeted with, retourne donc chez vous. And then I'd be reminded that no matter how Quebecois I sounded, no matter how Canadian I felt, to some, my skin, my hair, would always make me a stranger in my own home. But no matter some people's hate, I am the product of love between cultures. I navigate between two worlds on a daily basis. I am intercultural. And so today, as a Francophone living in Alberta, as a university professor, as a sociolinguist who raises awareness about language variation, discrimination, and social justice, I cherish the fact that I get to be myself, build bridges, and help shape new meanings. My name is Kane Day Adivogel. I'm in the faculty of nursing, bilingual nursing to be exact. So kind of like at the main campus and also like the campus St. Jean. How would you describe anti-Black racism? So yeah, I just define anti-Black racism as just prejudice and discrimination towards a Black person simply because they're Black. How have you dealt with racism in your own life? Most of the racism that I've faced in my own life has been kind of indirect. Like I see racism as in like either direct where somebody is like so racist up front to you being like, I don't like you because you're black. And then indirect where like, it's kind of like the little things they do or like the questions or the way they talk to you. So I grew up in Regina and Saskatoon, uh, like elementary and high schools I went to. It was mostly like white people that were there. So like sometimes we would have group discussions in class about race or anything. I would feel like I was the like the voice of reason for every black person. But that's like really a lot of load. And that kind of like makes it seem as if there is only like one black person to like describe a whole race of people. Have you ever had to self-police your behavior? Um, I try not to as much anymore, but I would used to, like when I go to stores and like, if I could feel like somebody was following me, I would feel like I had to buy something, even though like what I was looking for at the store wasn't there, I would still feel like I'd have to buy something just so they wouldn't think I was like stealing. Cause you know, like if you walk out of the store with nothing but your bag, they could think, oh, did she put something in there? I really try not to anymore because you know, it's not just or fair, right? What steps can we as a society take toward improving race relations for all? Um, I think the biggest thing that um, as a society we can do is first to realize that 
it's not either you're racist or you're not racist. Like those are not the options at this point. It's more about being anti-racist. It's about having the uncomfortable conversations and like calling people out when like what they said just didn't sit well with you. And like, it doesn't have to be in a rude way. Like not just saying, oh, that's racist because that doesn't really help any person because then the person who said the comment will just be like frustrated and, and they won't understand what they did. Rather, if you like ask them to further explain or if you further explained, then like that is how we start to bridge the gap. And um like um, allies are really play a big role in like how racism progresses because like black people can't be the only ones advocating and being like, you know, always speaking out because we're not the ones who cause racism. So we can't be the only ones to fix it. And the idea of I don't see color kind of has to be thrown out the window. We all see color, we're all different and that's okay and what makes each of us unique, but we should not like, black people shouldn't feel threatened or like feel scared for their lives just doing everyday activities. And it's gonna take years and years, but it starts by having those uncomfortable conversations and calling people out. And you know, you, you will lose some friends, but I, I don't think somebody who would judge you for the color of your skin is really a true friend in the first place. That was Black Talk. Special thanks to our show's sponsor, Kias, the Cool Institute for Advanced Studies at the University of Alberta. Find out more at kias.ualberta.ca. Our show was co-hosted by Andy Knight and Zach Penda. Our show producer is Katrina Ingram. Technical production by Tom Merklinger. And I'm Nicola Barreto. Our theme music is Fling It Up by Dyson Knight of the Bahamas. Graphic design by Anna Chakravorty. A huge thanks to our expert guests, faculty and students. The University of Alberta acknowledges that we are located on Treaty 6 territory and respects the histories, languages and cultures of First Nations, Métis, Inuit and all First Peoples of Canada whose presence continues to enrich our vibrant community. Find out more about Black Talk at blacktalk.ca. It's Brigger Doom Boom time now. And we ain't even trying to explain. No, too late for you to hide now. If you are there, you must see come to play. Masquerade to the city. Freedom to expose yourself is ecstasy. So free your mind and leave we be. Don't waste your time casting judgment on me. Cause either way, this is happening. Ain't nobody stopping me. This is happening. Ain't nobody stopping me. This is happening. Ain't nobody stopping me. Nobody stopping me. Nobody This is Black Talk.